This is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homebrew, a podcast dedicated to everything startup-related. This episode continues my conversation with Dylan Lenz, co-founder and CEO of Neighborly. No, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And in your experience while hiring, how have you screened for those traits? Whether the individual is a real risk taker or if they just want a job. So in terms, okay, so let, the first one, let's talk about hiring. So when I'm hiring, that's, that's changed massively. And frankly, I think that the number one thing that I've learned doing this company versus previous companies is how to hire correctly. I've had to fire or lay off or have had people quit. Um, yeah, you know, it's over 40 people at this company. And so that's been a hugely expensive learning process for me. It literally costs us millions of dollars making bad hires. And so, you know, it obviously depends on the role and it also depends on the stage of the company. So in the earliest days, earliest days of the company, what I looked for was people who were more willing to try something new. And what we ended up finding was the majority of those people were like under the age of 35 and were feeling a little bit stagnant in their current role and excited about doing something else and optimistic. And it's hard to get anybody, anybody to join a startup. It's a little easier when you've got a couple million dollars in seed funding, but anybody who's like in a really you know solid position at a big company, those people typically are not the group you're going to end up being able to attract. And I think that there's also this concept in like terms of like human social dynamics in general, whether it's like you looking for, and I have these like really weird analogies where I think that like dating and hiring are very similar. Basically dating itself is this like interview process where you're going through a series of interviews and basically trying to qualify a candidate. And recruiting, which is you going through a series of interviews, trying to determine if there's going to be a sustainable ongoing relationship. We actually attract who we attract kind of a lot less in our control than we anticipate. So what I mean by that is like, let's say you're going to go and try and get a girlfriend, get a boyfriend, whatever it is. Well, the reason that most people match up in college is because you've, you've kind of like, you know, shuffled yourself into the, the program or the school or the friend group organically. It's not based on where your parents moved you when you were 15 years old. And it's not based on, you know, anything beyond, you know, what school you, you were smart enough to get into, what program you're interested in pursuing. And then you end up kind of like going to the college bars and that kind of stuff. And then you end up meeting somebody or meeting them through friends. And just kind of, you naturally, you know, this is sociology 101, but like people basically shuffle themselves into the groups that they're, they're already preordained into. And I think the same thing happens with startups. You know, the guys that are senior engineers, at a series A, series B startup and trying to attract them to a seed stage startup. Those people are typically people who either experienced later stage startup success, you know, a series C employee who's now joining another company because they're interested in obtaining more of the financial outcome that they missed the last time. Or they are people who are like already kind of rambunctious outliers who are not that risk adverse. You know, you can find these people at like the coffee and code meetups where, you know, you, uh, you have a group of people that are like 
part-time programmers, contractors, but they're kind of looking for their, their suite. They're looking to join a startup. There's a, there's a group of people out there looking for that and you can find those people. But yeah, I, I think that like, it kind of naturally happens. It's not as, it's not so much of like just searching through a pile of dirt, looking for a scrap of gold. Like, you know, those people naturally sift themselves into the bottom of the pan. Switching topics a little bit here. We were talking about this on our last call, but you're originally from Canada. You now live in the U.S. and California. What are some of the differences that you've noticed culturally between Canadians and Americans in their approach to business, their approach to entrepreneurship? What are your thoughts? Okay, so first of all, we're going to get my beliefs on the United States out of the way, which are going to be very controversial and probably taken out of context when other people listen to this. But I think the United States is the greatest, most powerful empire in the history of empires. You got almost half a billion population, you know, 350 million, whatever it is. Um, and uh, not to mention like all the countries that are fundamentally reliant on the United States economy that are not part of the United States. But the United States was basically designed to be like super pro-business. You know, you look at like the founding fathers and the terms and conditions that they put into the constitution of the United States. And really what that comes down to is like, we're open for business and we're here to basically make as much fucking money as possible. And that was kind of like the Magna Carta outlook. Then you have Canada and Canada fundamentally was all the people who didn't want to leave the United Kingdom, didn't want to leave, you know, the rule of, of King George uh, at the time of the Revolutionary War. And so they all moved north. And so you have a whole bunch of people that are basically like, cool, we're going to go start something new, try something completely different. And a whole bunch of people who are like, mm, I kind of like how things are. And I think that's permeated into the cultures over the last 300 plus years in the sense that like Canadians, I think are incredibly risk adverse. I think that they're incredibly conservative when it comes to business and finances. Um, you look at Toronto business culture, it's largely oriented towards at best, New York business culture, but more London business culture. You see how the bankers dress up in the mornings and the importance of having the correct shoes and, and suits and all that stuff. And then you see it also in the universities and you see it in how they're basically training the officer class of these big corporations. And the most innovative financial services company in all of Canada is the Royal Bank of Canada. Like those guys are investing more in fintech than anybody else. And they're pushing further and more aggressively than anybody else but they're the largest national bank. And then I think on top of that, it comes down to like Canada's approach to immigration, which I think is actually one of the biggest assets that Canada has. And I think it's actually one of the reasons that Canada could become a true superpower. But Canada is basically just fucking vanilla ice cream. Canada is vanilla ice cream. That's a quote. You can take that. It's not controversial. Canada is basically the modern day Switzerland of North America. Nobody has a problem doing business with Canadians, maybe the Chinese a little bit because of the whole like Huawei, you know, debacle. But other than that, Canada is trusted and it's stable and it's next to the largest economy on the planet. And they benefit from that in tremendous ways. But my grandmother has this saying about people in general, which is the A students go and work for the C students and the B students work for the government. And the desire for most Canadians, in my experience, is that they just want like an upper middle class life. They want... They want to be better than where their parents were at. And if you look at like the populations of like the major areas in Canada, around Vancouver, around Toronto, you see these groups that are, it's, it's hugely based on, on immigration, which is, I think it's superpower if it gets its shit together. But what you end up with is like these, and there's a quote from the Godfather and I'm going to butcher it. It's like, 
you know, we do this so our kids can be doctors and lawyers and accountants so their kids can be artists and philosophers. And that's what Canada is. It's this group of people that are, you know, either initially conservative because of kind of like this historic British conservatism, or it's new immigrants who are like, hey, we're going to come and we're going to like make a name for ourselves in the sense of we're going to have a small local business, a restaurant, a, you know, salon, whatever it is, we're going to have a business. Our kids are going to go to university, become educated, and then they're going to be a little bit better than we were. And they're going to be part of a stable Western economy. And what you end up with is a population the size of California. But on one hand, I can name remarkable multi-billion dollar technology companies that have been grown out of there, despite the fact that you have one of the most educated populations in the world. I think actually Canada is the most educated country on the planet per capita. But California has, like looking out my window, I can see, you know, five multi-billion dollar technology companies from, from here. And it's not because California just captures the best people, because Canada's capturing the best people too. They're doing a brain drain of of you know India and China and all these other countries where if you have a master's degree, basically you get greenlit in and, and people want you in Canada, but they don't have the risk-taking mindset that the United States does. And I think that's what's holding it back. And I have a fun story, you know, just a personal story about this. My grandmother, you know, I, I come from from Austrian German immigrants. And uh, I dropped out of college, which was kind of disappointing for my family. But I bring my grandmother to my house. Just as I have a small farm, and a, okay, I'm gonna be honest, I have a dope ass house. I buy this house for cash when I'm 26 years old. I bring my 93 year old grandmother to this house, and we're playing bocce on my bocce court, swimming in my pool, looking out at a forever view of the San Francisco Bay and Mount Diablo, and I'm in a American palace. And she turns to me and she's like, this is great, Dylan, but when are you going to go back and finish your degree? Because she just wants me to have it in my back pocket because she's got an insurance mindset. And that's the difference is that there's like this insurance mindset in most of the world and especially so in Canada, which is like this, the future is either unknown or it's a pessimistic view that things are going to get worse. And then you end up with all these people who want to become doctors and, or not doctors, but they want to become accountants and lawyers and different things that basically are like more certain careers where you know you're going to end up, you know, making an okay living. In the United States, it's like the complete opposite. And it's much more oriented towards risk taking. And if you look at like literally do a survey of like multimillionaires, they are absolutely convinced that they have the ability to affect change and control their outcomes. And that the future is going to be better. And if you don't have that as like a fundamental component of the culture, you're going to end up with a culture that basically, you know, is in, in second place. And they are. Canada is America's hat, some people say. It's the 51st state, except it doesn't get any of the trimmings of being a citizen of Rome. That's very true. It really does feel like Canadians care more about not being wrong sometimes than they care about being right. The thing that I've always pondered on a little bit is whether or not Canada can have its cake and eat it too. Like I would agree, the world perceives Canadians as pretty nice and pretty trustworthy. But do you think it might lose some of that edge if it does go down that more aggressive and assertive path? Okay, well, we're not, we're not like shying away from controversial topics and opinions. So here we go. I don't think that it's about everybody. Like I said, I don't think everybody should do a startup. I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. And I don't think that everybody should take these wild, crazy risks. 
But look at the population of Canada when it comes to music and how Canada is massively overrepresented in, in arts and culture, but underrepresented in business entrepreneurship. It's because the business aspect of Canada is not oriented towards risk-taking because there isn't really these like pillars of success that make it seem like, oh, I could actually do this. Come to Silicon Valley, it's the opposite. All day long as a you know, first year in Stanford, you hear about other students who've dropped out and started their own companies and they're succeeding wildly. It doesn't seem that scary because you've seen other people do it. I, you, you see Jim Carrey, you, sing, you see Shania Twain, you see Drake, you see The Weeknd, you see these like people who are able to transcend the fact that Canada is overall a very small country and very small, it's not a small economy, but it, you know, it, it's a small amount of political and economic power relative to the United States. But the Canadian music is considered like the Canadian mafia. You know, it's, it's some of the best producers, some of the best artists, some of the best comedians, some of the best actors. And the population of Canada is roughly the same as Texas or California. So why is it, over to, why is it able to overrepresent itself in those industries, but underrepresent, underrepresent itself in these others, specifically business and entrepreneurship and technology? And I think it comes down to like the business, Canadian business mindset and the Canadian business conservatism which is largely oil and gas, resource rich, you know, that's all brick and mortar. Yeah, we all need trees to build houses. Um, that's a proven market, it's a proven business. The reason that Canada has that position globally, I think, is because of, you know, we talk about Canadian politeness and all that kind of stuff, but it's Canadian stability. And that Canadians are not largely, Canadians have a very contrasting profile compared to their next door neighbors, right? So even if Canada got super risky, you know, it's like we're looking at like two houses and one, one house is American. It's a big house that's like kind of like there's shit in the driveway. It's like, you know, massive, but like it's just like over the top. And then there's this like perfect little bungalow next door called Canada. Well, if Canada starts putting out some interesting flowers in the front yard, I don't think anybody's going to like really worry about Canada being a high risk neighbor compared to their, their neighbors next door, even if they you know start putting in Venus flytraps up front or something interesting. Uh, so I don't see that happening. It's just, I think that fundamentally for Canada to continue to be, uh, to continue to evolve and remain uh, a major player economically in the global perspective outside of its resource rich economy is that it's going to have to become okay with risk taking. And more specifically, it's going to have to have a shift in how people do business networking. And this is what I think the big problem is. And we're talking about like risk aversion and, and stuff like that. It's down here in the Bay Area. Your value in your network of business contacts a lot of times comes down to your capacity to make new introductions for your network. So I get introduced to new startups all the time, and I push those startups to my investors. I don't make the decision on whether or not that startup is going to be a quality investment or not. I leave that up to the investor, and I'm very, very reciprocal with my network. You know, I, I, if I, like I, I, I've been blessed to be able to be introduced to some of the best investors in Silicon Valley through other entrepreneurs. And I pay that forward by introducing other entrepreneurs to those investors. The people who introduced me originally to those investors are not looking for some sort of payday from me or some sort of like, you know, I mean, if they did ask me for a favor, I'd give them a favor. But like in Canada, what I found was like, even investors that had already invested in my company were nervous about making an introduction to a potential business partner or a potential investor because they were worried that if we were not as polished or dialed in or 
interesting to that next person that we would be some sort of an embarrassment to them. And down here, it's like, we don't care. That's the, that's the fear. And that's where I, I think that like, you need to see that change. And then the other thing is, is that like, there needs to be this sense of optimism. Like everybody who's an uh, entrepreneur in Canada, for the large part I've found, and I think this is shifting now, um, like in the last 10 years, I think it started to shift a little bit, especially with new founders who've made a lot of money, like the guys at Shopify and the guys at Wealthsimple, because they kind of have adopted this Y Combinator and US startup mentality because they basically came down here, either worked for a company down here or like have received investment from the VCs down here and they understand how the economy and the, the system here works. But I know a ton of, of people who've had successes not massive successes, but successes where they're able to basically, you know, their kids' kids are going to go to Harvard and they're not going to ever worry about scholarships, but they're nervous about the future and that they're nervous about making those like little seed investments in other companies. And down here, I know guys who are like, <clears throat> you know, cause there's like that whole like financial planning 101 thing, which is that you should only have X percentage of your net worth in high risk, whatever. Um, down here, I find guys that are like barely getting out of their own companies and they're taking the money that they do see exits with and they're investing in other startups because they actually believe that these companies have the capacity to take market share. And what we're looking at is an economy where, you know, everybody else is growing at 2%, right? Like that's, you know, everything is growing at 2%. That's, that's the rate of inflation. So if you're a winner or a loser in this, this model, it basically means you're a company that grows at more than 2% a year. Or you're a company that declines it, at, you know, or is not making the two percent grade. And so, which companies, when you have 2,800 publicly traded companies across the globe, which companies right now are able to actually show growth beyond two percent? Well, I'll tell you right now, it's startups. That's why there's so much money in in startup funding right now. That's why everyone's, you know, every fund that I know of is oversubscribed. You know, there's just shit tons of money in the market for for new entrepreneurs. Um, more so than I've ever seen or ever, you know, anyone's ever seen historically. Because these companies, these small companies actually are either solving problems that are material to these big organizations, which suck at building products themselves. If you have a company with 5,000 employees and you have a problem for, you know, a subset of that market that maybe is a $20 million market in your $2 billion a year balance sheet, that $20 million a year customer base and that $20 million a year problem are things that small companies latch onto, and then they go in, grab that market share, and exploit it. But what they're doing is they're really developing products and services that should have been developed by these big companies, but they're ignoring it. And big companies suck at product development for a reason. It's because the bureaucracy and the fact that you don't have somebody who's like literally betting their entire farm on this thing working. And when you have somebody who's that relentless, like a, a founder, who's basically saying like, I'm going to bet my reputation, my career and all my personal finances for the next five years on this idea. You're of course going to end up with somebody who's built a product or a company that's built a product that's more competitive than what you're going to see internally. When that same company, by the time they realize that that startup is an actual competitor to them in some real dimension, then has to go put an executive team together, go through a series of budget processes to like give them a budget, which will take six months and then go and build a team, which will take another three to four months. And then hopefully they'll actually understand the problem at the same level that this founder has. Other founders down here, especially have recognized that. And they've recognized that when they put in 25 or $50,000 into an early stage company, 
that the chances of that company, especially if it's coming through, if that founder has figured out a way to get an introduction to that person, then that founder is probably capable of actually like getting introductions to their customers or introductions to whoever. If they figured out a way into the the capital, they're probably figuring a way into the market. And that the chances are that they're either going to be able to return capital or they're going to come back being an Airbnb or something like that, where they can return it of this massive scale. And, you know, I, I think that that's a, a huge difference. And I think that that like is what's going to hurt Canada in terms of remaining relevant as we, you know, continue to transition from a resource economy to an information economy. I honestly find that incredible though. Like even when you're barely coming out alive, you're still willing to do the same thing all over again and put it all online. What I was impressed by as well, and as a final question, you mentioned in our last call, you only cared about three numbers. For listeners, could you talk about that one more time? Yeah, I mean, I think, so this is kind of like foundational to what we believe in at Neighborly and what we're doing at Neighborly and what I've learned in life. So this is part of my sales pitch for the company. It's basically that like I, so fundamentally, I believe there's three numbers that dictate the, a, a human outcome, your zip code, your IQ, and your credit score. And if you change any one of those three numbers, you're going to change all of them and you're going to change the trajectory of the human outcome. So basically, like I said, you know, the, the reason I turned out the way I did was because my mom drove five miles to make sure I went to good school every morning. She borrowed somebody else's zip code because we couldn't qualify for housing in that neighborhood. So we borrowed somebody's address and we drove in. But what she did was she made sure that me and my sister's network was not the kids in the low-income neighborhood. And she made sure that my, my network was people who are business owners and the children of business owners and lawyers and accountants and, and doctors and stuff like that, which put a big chip on my shoulder. But what it also did was it allowed me to like basically access a better education. And even though it was a public education, it still put me and my sister on a trajectory where we both ended up with full ride scholarships. My sister, you know, is a geologist now and very well renowned in, in her field. And I've turned out pretty much okay. It's, I mean, this is the thing is that you have to like be okay with the fact that like it all could go to shit in a minute. And then what you're left with is your network. Your network is your net worth. Who you know matters. So like, you know, I'm standing out, you know, I'm standing in my kitchen right now. I'm looking out uh, over the, I live in Green Valley, California, and I'm looking out over and I have like three people that I know, uh, you know, in this single view that if I lost everything tomorrow, if neighborly shut down, I could call up and be like, Hey, you know, my skill set, can I get a job? You know, and I'd probably have a job within, within an hour. And it's because people have seen my tenacity. They've seen my skill set in action. They've seen what I've done and they value it correctly in the sense that they're not looking for me to check boxes and whatever. But the reason that I relocated from, from Toronto to the Bay Area was because I just found that like, I couldn't access capital. I could network my way in, but there was just like a ceiling in Canadian venture capital, and I had to come down here. And then being down here has frankly given me the confidence to like run my business and take bigger risks with the business than I would in Canada because I wasn't just searching for that 10x revenue multiple, I was searching for, you know, the secret sauce that allowed us to become like a real competitor and actually grow the business into a multi-billion dollar business. And, you know, I, I, finishing that story, like the way that I explain it typically is like, you know, Larry Page wasn't Larry Page when he was born. He was probably smart as shit, but his parents were both college professors. So by the time he was 10 years old, he'd heard over a hundred thousand words. 
in comparison to a middle income or low, lower middle income child who will hear about 10,000 words in a public school system. And that compounds over time. That changes your IQ. And that, you know, like you change your IQ, you change what school you go to, you change which friend group you have, you change, uh, you know, your network, and then you change your outcomes. And it gives you either the confidence to take on risk or just the capacity to work your way into, uh, you know, other opportunities that you may not have seen historically. And throughout my life, all the opportunities that I've taken that have been good opportunities because I've taken some sort of like professional, like I've taken some sort of risk with my network, with who I know. I got out of the, when I was in university, I was hanging around with other university students and I started, I went to like startup weekend and I started like meeting people who were in the community that were interested in building businesses. And then I met my co-founders who were two guys who were about seven years older than me on the first company that we sold. You know, I was, able to basically show the talent that I already had and the desire that I already had and basically join these guys that were much further along than me and get a nice exit on that first company. And I took that risk. Yeah. It's not as poetic as I, I, I leave it sometimes, but um, I do think it's kind of critical. You, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so you need to be really, really conscientious of who you spend that time with. Um, it's one of the big reasons I left Kelowna, British Columbia and moved out to Toronto because I realized that like people that I actually really admired in the Kelowna business network, while they were successful or, you know, encouraging, they weren't the risk takers that were going to allow me to go to the next level. Uh, you know, they were guys who were in real estate development and, you know, different jobs that were much more concrete, but going and starting a new venture that had no market, no money, you know, no idea what you're doing, but, like that still was very concerning and you know you need to be willing to take those risks and kind of like you have to be okay being the weirdo you have to be okay failing and there's no secret to life that teaches you that you either have it or you don't and if you don't have it you're gonna like have to like become okay with becoming very uncomfortable for extended periods of time but the only way that you're gonna like really achieve anything in life is if you're willing to take the big risks that nobody else is and do the work that nobody else wants to do. And that's why I was the fucking janitor for my company for the first three years. That's the reason that like, like nobody, most people don't want to be the CEO. Most people don't want to be the founder. They like the, the title and they like the fact that like, they get to like dictate how meetings run, but ultimately they don't want to be cleaning toilets at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night. They don't want to give up all the like, you know, little pleasures that people typically have. And you have to be okay doing that. If you actually want to like, drive forward on this bigger thing and you have to delay gratification that's it i really want to thank dylan for coming on today this was our longest episode by far and it was a tremendous honor to hear this story and to know that regardless of where you start in the world you can go on to do great things and i think dylan is a living testament of that as for the program my name is cassius velicella be sure to check us out on linkedin youtube and twitter at homeroom podcast Thanks for listening.